Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a show that goes beyond the field guide to tell you everything you need to know about an individual bird species, with foul language included. I'm John, and today I'm sitting out in Otter Creek Wilderness. You may remember this from the Ruby Crown Kinglet and the Golden Crown Kinglet episodes. I was out here in about a foot of snow. Um, recording talking about those species now it's much different it's springtime the snow and ice have melted and some birds are starting to sing and move into the area i'm kind of sitting by a bog that turns into a summer meadow and is surrounded by pine trees and rhododendrons i'm hoping that this may be part of the breeding territory of the subject of today's episode the song sparrow This episode is actually part one of a two-parter episode on song sparrows. These birds just have so much interesting behaviors and vocalizations that I had to call in an expert to help me out. So in this first episode, I'm going to be talking with Professor Jeremy Hyman, who has researched birds such as the Carolina wren and song sparrows. Specifically, he focuses on birds' territorial behavior, and he has some great information and anecdotes to tell. I'll just jump right into it uh, to teach us about Song Sparrow's surprisingly aggressive behavior. Here's Jeremy. Jeremy Hyman, hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, And before we start exploring the amazing world of um, Song Sparrow bird behavior, um, do you mind telling my listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. So maybe start further back, but... uh, I'm sort of a, uh, a lifelong birder. I started bird watching when I was a little kid, really before I can really remember I was a bird watcher. Uh, I had support in a way from uh, my grandfather was a birder and I used to go birding with him a lot. Uh, my parents drove me around on a lot of bird watching field trips and uh, I just sort of never gave it up. So I studied birds in college, Went to graduate school to study bird behavior, then a postdoc, uh, and now I'm a professor at Western Carolina University, where I study animal behavior and still primarily birds. Awesome. That sounds like if I could go back and, I don't know, if I didn't do medical <laughs> school, I wish that I had done that, because uh, it sounds like a, a really cool life and, and fun. 
Um, do you remember when you were a little kid, was there any, like, one moment with a bird that, like, kind of, I don't know, you knew, like, you were hooked? Uh, you know, there's a couple of moments that I remember. So, like I said, I've been interested in birds since literally before I can remember. Uh, and I knew a lot about birds from a very early age. And I think it was maybe when I was, um, oh, I'm forgetting what year it was. I think I was maybe nine years old. I grew up in central Texas, which is a great place for for birding. And it happened to be a winter when there was a big eruption of pine siskins. Oh, yeah. So all of a sudden, there was this bird coming to our bird feeders in the winter that I had never seen before. But I'd poured over field guides so many times that I immediately knew what it was. <laughs> and, you know, it's like uh, seeing a celebrity on the street. You know, I was like, oh, that's a pine siskin. Where did it come from? Why are pine siskins here? And I started, you know, reading whatever I could about pine siskins. And I was just so fascinated by the fact that, you know, this bird that had this very different lifestyle than most of the other birds that I was familiar with, they didn't migrate down every year. They weren't here year round or something like that. It was something completely different. So that behavior really caught my attention. Uh, I remember an, another event where we had a um, a ruby crown kinglet. Oh yeah, was wintering in our yard, and it started coming to the front window and fighting its reflection, or you know, showing off its crown <laughs> to that reflection. And that also really struck me because it wasn't just you know a bird that I was counting and saying oh, I've seen twenty birds in the backyard today, but it was a bird doing something really noticeable and really unique. And I, I just wanted to know more about what it was actually doing. So I always remember back to those two specific birds, those two specific events that started me thinking more about the actual lives of birds and not just thinking of them as, uh, you know, ticks on a checklist or something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm yeah. Um, uh... Pine Siskins, this winter was actually an eruption year for them, so right. I got to see them kind of for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I kind of had the similar experiences. Oh, my God, the Pine Siskins! <laughs> Hell yes! Um, so that's that's great. Um, and you've done a lot of uh, research on um, song sparrows, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, specifically talking about, like, their... Uh, studying their territorial behavior, their singing, um, and almost, like, stuff with their personalities, too. Right. Um, can you give like a just overview of like what the territory is like for song sparrows and kind of what their behavior is like? Okay. So song sparrows in many ways are sort of a, a, a typical songbird. That's why they've been so well studied. Uh, they don't live way high up in the trees. They're very accessible. Pr practically every little hedgerow in the eastern United States has song sparrows in them. And so during the breeding season, they are territorial. Males set up territories around you know, hedgerows and field edges. And the territory is really primarily just a place that the male sings from. It's a couple of different trees, a couple of different song posts where he's proclaiming his ownership of that spot. He's trying to drive off rival males and he's trying to attract a female. And most typically, the female will nest 
in those same hedgerows that he's singing from, or sometimes in a field just in front of where he's singing from, they don't actually spend all of their lives on that territory. Many populations of song sparrows are, are migratory, so they'll right. leave for a few months. And even during the breeding season, they're not spending all day on their territory. They'll go off and forage in areas that are sort of no man's lands between territories, um, but then come back to the territory, obviously, to sing or to feed mm-hmm. dung if they, if they have babies to, to take care of. And uh, I just, uh, you mentioned no man's land, like th- through my research with these guys, kind of what um, stuck out to me is just how, um, I don't know, aggressive, how battle prone these guys are um, when, you know, when they're in their territory singing. Um, and I just thought it was fascinating because, um, I mean, you know, it's going on like a bird singing because it's defending its territory. It sounds all pretty and nice to us, but right. it wasn't until really, I like started to pay attention that, I mean, this is stuff you can like figure out in your own backyard, like where the lines are and which neighbors hate each other. Um, and which ones are a little, get along a little better. And, um, uh, so I, I don't know. Can you talk about that? Like the interactions between um, the birds on neighboring territories? Sure. Um, so to go back to something you were saying earlier, uh, when we map territories, we're, we're mapping the locations of where males are, are singing from, where individual males uh, have their song perches. And then you can use song playback, like recordings of song, just to sort of test those boundaries a little bit and say, okay, Male A will sing from this tree, but is is that the end of his territory? What happens if I play song from 10 feet further on? And the song sparrows are very attuned to those really small differences. So eventually you'll get to a place that's out of their territory and they don't care when they hear her. <laughs> I mean, they kind of don't care when they hear her yep. singing. And then you do that on the other side with another male and you kind of drag them as far as they're willing to come. And what you typically find is that if you map those those song posts, you end up with non-overlapping sets of points. Every bird has its own discrete territory. Now, that those discrete non-overlapping territories are just sort of a snapshot in time. That's probably the way that they look for most of the summer, most of the breeding season. But they do fight, and especially early in the season, you'll see a lot of fights over territory boundaries. Later in the season, you might see big fights uh, if a female nests too close to the edge of one of the territories, and then suddenly they battle again to, as the males are trying to make sure that they, uh, they're in control of the space that the female is using. Right. Uh, so... A lot of my research over the years, this is going back to my PhD work on Carolina wrens, was looking at the way that neighboring males fight over their territory. And uh, what has been found over and over and over again with lots of different kinds of territorial animals, not just birds, is that once the territories stabilize a little bit, that males are less aggressive towards their neighbors than they are towards strangers. It's known as uh, the deer enemy effect 
or sometimes you, know, you can call it just neighbor recognition or neighbor discrimination. So on the basis of songs alone, they can recognize all their neighbors and they're less worried about that neighbor that they've already fought with than they are with a stranger who represents an unknown threat. So that, that basic framework of the neighbor, uh, of the dear enemy effect has, um, has been the inspiration for a lot of my research over the years. And when I started working on song sparrows, what I was interested in was the fact that there's really a tremendous amount of variation in just how aggressive individual song sparrows will be when they're defending their territory, or at least as far as I can measure um, by using playback. Mm -hmm. So probably every birder that has ever tried to use a little bit of playback to get a bird to respond, what you're hoping for is that the bird's gonna come rushing right in and, and give you a great view. Right, be a super aggressive bird that right. know, wants to come towards you. Right, but not every species responds that way, and also not every individual within a species responds that way. So in the song sparrows, some individuals come rushing right in, some individuals come in a little bit and then hang around the periphery, kind of nervously flitting about, trying to figure out what's going on. And some individuals actually hide. And hmm. uh, th my first research on song sparrows was focused on trying to understand the differences between the individuals that come rushing in really aggressively and the individuals that hide. Uh, we kind of... We called them the wimps and the studs, you know, trying to understand <laughs> between highly aggressive and non-aggressive individuals. Probably wasn't the best thing to be calling them because it's uh, introduced a little bit of bias. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was working in a population of song sparrows that had been studied by many years by my colleague, Melissa Hughes. Oh, these were the ones in Pennsylvania? Yes. And so she had been studying that population for many years and mapping territories and catching individual birds and banning them. So in a given year, you can show up and you can know what birds are new to the territory, what birds have switched territories, how old they are. And so, you know, I started by investigating whether or not there were differences in age between the aggressive birds and the non-aggressive birds. Uh, were there differences in you know, which territories aggressive birds and non-aggressive birds got. Uh, and so, again, that, that was sort of the, the beginning of all this work that I've done on song sparrow aggressiveness, was just trying to understand the differences between the aggressive birds and the non-aggressive birds. Right. And just to go into a little bit how they um, will... Uh, fight over these borders um i i think i'll explain it and please correct me if i'm wrong but like so they do um they sing back and forth um right. a behavior called counter singing mm -hmm. um and uh they have uh i'm gonna later on in the podcast talk um a ton more about their vocalizations how they learn them all that kind of stuff okay but they have like a repertoire of songs they sing some of them they share with their neighbors um and uh some of them uh they don't but they'll do a uh type matching um, where they sing the same song back and forth and that means that they're really aggressive like they're trying to to fight with each other um, 
However, if uh, males are singing back and forth and one male is like, eh, I don't really want to fight this guy, but I don't want to totally back down either, then he'll, ins instead of repeating the same song back and forth, he'll repertoire match, where he'll sing a song that both of the males know. And so then they'll switch to a different song and sing that back and forth and kind of, you know, keep the peace, but, you know, don't, don't mess with me. Um, and then if it's one of these, as you called them, the wimp birds, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he's singing against a stud, um, he'll just switch his song entirely to one that the stud doesn't know. And, you know, kind of just to, uh, I don't want to fight just you, man. Just to de-escalate the situation. Yep. And uh, what do these fights look like when they do fight? Um, when you observe them, what, what kind of stuff would they do? What, what would it crescendo lead up to? And, like, I don't know, what would it look like? Well, it can... It can start with a lot of chasing, a detail that uh, might not come up till later, but you know, pops into my head. So there are floater males in the population that don't own a territory at all. Mm -hmm. They will wait until kind of midway through the breeding season. And if a male has been successful and now he's really busy raising offspring, sometimes those floaters will jump in and try to take over that spot while the owner is kind of distracted. Yep. And what you see then are just endless chases. The birds just circling around the fields, chasing each other. And as that floater goes by every territory, the territory owner starts to chase them. So they're you know, physically trying to scare them off, not just using their song to say, this space is mine. Mm -hmm. when, when you use playback to, to elicit territorial behavior, you can also, uh, you know, observe the fine scale um, behavior much more easily, you know, because you're you're focused on that one bird, and then you get to see things like, you know, how they counter sing in response, how they come closer, and especially if they get really really close to like a playback speaker that you have. Then they start puffing up their feathers and they vibrate their wings when they're singing. And, and they sing, I thought I read like they sing really soft too. Like. Yeah, the most, really the most extraordinary thing that they do, extraordinary in the sense of being, you know, weird and mysterious. Yeah. They drop the volume of their song till it can be almost completely inaudible. Oh my God. It's like a scary whisper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to mess you. <laughs> right. That's exactly the way I, I think. And you can it. see, you said you could see their throat vibrating. Yeah. You see their throat it. vibrating and they'll be right up next to the speaker. You know, when you're doing a playback experiment, it's interesting to think about what's going on in that bird's head because they're good at localizing the sound. So they know that that guy should be right there and they can't find them. And that must be <laughs> cause even greater rage to not be able to find your opponent. Yeah, they sit there like shaking, and their throat is vibrating, but the song is coming out. Yeah, and to me, it, it does seem like that. That must be really, really creepy. To it's like sneaking up on somebody, like you said, and just saying, "I'm gonna kill you." <laughs> I don't know if that was audible at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think it came through. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and uh, those poor floater males. I mean, they yeah. they can't get a break. Right. Like, it's tough. And so um, they they will get in physical fights. Um, again, in playback experiments, it's easier to observe because sometimes I'll use a taxidermic mount of a sparrow to, to really give them something to focus on, and then you get to see that they. They full on physically attack. 
and the territory owner will leap upon the back of the taxidermic mount and start pecking at the back of the head, pecking oh, the skull, gosh. the eyes. I mean, I think they're really going for the kill. Oh, my God. Um, so all the taxidermic mounts that I have are now missing the feathers at the back of the head, and sometimes the head pops off if it's a particularly <laughs> aggressive attack. You know that that stud sparrow when he knocks the head off the taxidermic mount, he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm good." <laughs> you know, many years ago when I was first doing this kind of work with Carolina Wrens, and I was using a taxidermic mount to look at actual attack rates, and I was doing a preliminary experiment because I didn't know what data I was going to record. So I was thinking, okay, I'll record how long it takes them to approach the mount, how much time they spend close. Uh, the latency, how long it takes them to attack. If they attack, I'll record how long they continue the attack. Right. And the first preliminary experiment that I did, I found out that you can't record how long they continue to attack because that might just be endless. And the next thing you know, I see this Carolina Wren ripping the cotton out of the eyes of this taxidermic <laughs> mount. I was like, oh, hold on. I only have one of those. I can't let you destroy my taxidermic mounts. Oh my God. So they're vicious. Wow. And then if yeah. you, once you realize that, you know, you can kind of look around at song sparrows, um, you know, midway through the season and you'll notice that some individuals are missing feathers on the backs of their heads. Mm. And in all likelihood, that's from real battles that they've had with other, other males, other neighbors or strangers that are lurking around. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the aggressiveness is just so um, contrasting with, I mean, our human perceptions of them, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's it's just so cool to learn about and to start to observe and um, really gives you a, a better picture of uh, these birds. And as far as these, uh, you know, the more aggressive individuals, the kind of stud ones, um, I, I saw some in research that they tend to um, uh, have larger clutch sizes, um, hold better territories. Anything else I missed there? Uh, no, that's that's primarily it. I mean, so I mentioned one of the first studies that I did where I, I looked to see if there were differences in age, whether older males were more aggressive. Yeah. Now, if you read that paper carefully, you'll, or even not carefully, you'll see that that was one of the first things that I found was that older males were more aggressive. Uh, turns out that was a fluke. <laughs> Oh, really? I, yeah, I never, I never found that again. I went back the next year and I thought, okay, you know, are they, are individual males getting more aggressive as they get older or is this some, some sort of selection where older males or more aggressive males hold on to their territories for more years? And essentially I never found that again. So being more aggressive doesn't mean you're going to hold on to your territory longer. Even those really wimpy males come back year after year after year to the same territory. Uh, and I, I guess I should add there that males are pretty consistent in their behavior from one year to the next. So if I oh. find a male is very aggressive in one year, they're very aggressive the next year. Um, so we have looked at, you know, territory quality is something that's actually surprisingly hard to look at. We don't know exactly what makes a good territory for a song sparrow. Um, but one thing that you can do is essentially ask, ask a female if she thinks this is a good territory <laughs> and she's voting by the number of eggs that she lays. Right. So we find that certain locations tend to have larger clutch sizes than others. 
uh, as if the females think this is a good spot. And you find that the aggressive mm -hmm. males are on those good spots. And one thing that I, that I had wanted to do for years and years was to look at rates of extra pair copulations. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you've talked about this in other episodes, but you know, Oh yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, Birds are not as faithful as they are sometimes described. Yeah. And there's a No, they mate for life. Right. <laughs> eh, they're getting some cloacal yeah. contact they, on the side. They <laughs> hang out together for life. Socially, maybe, although there's plenty of divorce also. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of cheating that happens. And so for years I imagine that, you know, that these males that are really, really aggressive, they must be trying to keep other males from copulating with their female. So I thought surely the more aggressive males hold on to their paternity better than the non-aggressive males. Right. Yeah. Cause it's something like 54% of, I, I, I'm throwing that out there. I think I read it. Yeah. Is, uh, is extra pair copulations. Well, that's a pretty high number. It's a lot lower in the song sparrows and it, it turned out gotcha. to be a lot, even lower than expected in the population that we worked on in, in North oh, Carolina. Okay. It was closer to 10% actually. Oh, wow. But still, you know, we, it was a tremendous amount of work done by my grad student, um, Jess Cripple. Um, but we mapped every territory, found every nest, took blood samples, did paternity analysis, did all the playback experiments, only to then find out that the more aggressive males didn't maintain paternity on their territories uh, as, uh, or more than the wimpier males did. Right. Huh. Um, so the females were not... <laughs> apparently showing any preferences for who they sneak around with based on who aggressive they were or, or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you know, it makes common sense to think that, you know, they, they would, but um, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes the, the science doesn't match up with what you think. Um, That's why you do it. <laughs> yep. And uh, I mean, this is a field of uh, a lot of active research. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. And, and as you said, you know, some studies might show like a fluke association and then other people go back and um, find something uh, different. Right. Just an example, like uh, the dear enemy effect you were talking mm -hmm. about. You know, I, I saw that over and over and over again um, in papers that I was reading. And, um, and you know, it kind of matches up real well with common sense. And then I saw another paper and they were kind of going at to, I guess, disprove the dear enemy effect. And they found that, you know, actually they responded stronger to, um, uh, neighbors, known birds that were within their, um, territory versus a stranger callback within their territory. Um, and especially if those known birds were a tutor that, you know, the song sparrow mm. had learned, um, uh, songs from, and their reasoning behind that was, uh, that the song sparrow had learned his songs from this tutor through conflicts with them. So he almost right. had like bird PTSD. And when he heard <laughs> a bird singing that song, he's like, Oh, I know that guy. Like we've duked it out before. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think a very common phenomenon that you see in, in all sorts of research is that someone describes a phenomenon first, whether it's a deer enemy effect or, you know, all sorts of other behavioral patterns that you see. And then other people say, oh, how widespread is that pattern? And then it gets described again and again and again and again. So, uh, you know, it's deer enemy effect has been described in birds and then described in frogs and then described in, you know, this other group of organisms. But then 
more and more reports start to creep in of someone saying, oh, I found the exact opposite. <laughs> and you sort of have to, you have to let all of those different examples accumulate before you can really start to see the larger pattern. You know, most patterns in nature are not completely invariant. It's not that every organism does it the same way. Um, but then, yeah, you might, you might start to see a larger pattern. Well, that maybe the deer enemy effect is more common in um, seasonally breeding birds, or maybe the deer enemy effect, you know, disappears if there's intense competition between neighbors, like in, you know, dense breeding colonies or something like that. Right. So, you know, you're always excited. Yeah, I say this from my, my own perspective. If I publish a paper, I'm always hoping at first that other people find the same thing that I found. <laughs> but then after enough people find the same thing that I found and I've realized, okay, it wasn't a fluke. Then yeah. when people start to find the opposite, then you're like, okay, let's, you know, let's figure out what the larger pattern is here and maybe, you know, learn more about the natural world and what's really going on out there. Yeah. And that's what makes it so cool. And I don't know, that's what makes it so exciting for me too, is like just even the song sparrows in your backyard and stuff like, uh, they could have their own individual thing going on. That's, you know, just cause you read it in a field guide or, or something doesn't mean that it's a hard and fast rule. So, right. I don't know. It just gives more incentive to observe and, and learn about these guys. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the great thing about all this kind of behavioral research is that, you know, it makes you realize that, that birds are individuals, that they have individual personalities. There's aggressive ones and non-aggressive ones. There's, bold ones and there's shy ones and they have interactions with all of their neighbors and that means that every cardinal and every tufted titmouse that you hear outside your feeder if you're in the eastern u.s you know they have complex social lives that they're dealing with and the, um, you know, there's just a lot more to appreciate there than just um you know just putting a name to what kind of species that you're looking at Yep. Yeah. Like you, I mean, like you said, it's uh, more than just a checklist. It's yeah. um, about experiencing them. And um, uh, I had heard stories about people, um, you know, with some pretty serious birders and, you know, they would just be like, oh, it's just a, it's just a cardinal or it's just a, you know, but uh, for me, it's like, oh, look, a cardinal, let me see what he's doing. Like, is he doing what I expect him to do? Or is he doing something a little bit different that I need to look more at? So, right, right that that's the cool part um about all this i have a, a couple more questions kind of about um uh, song sparrows and and their aggression um mm -hmm. we uh kind of talked in the beginning that this is like really kind of during um breeding season that right. um that they're doing that and especially with the, the eastern ones that um you've studied a lot they're pretty strongly migratory uh but i know like on the west coast there's a lot more resident populations um do you know anything about, do they still keep some territories through the winter? Is it more fluid? Um, yeah, so in the eastern U.S., song sparrows are more migratory. But the population that I study now uh, in the southern Appalachians in uh, western North Carolina, they are actually not terribly migratory. And that sort of makes sense that at the southern end of your range, you might not have to migrate compared to being at the more northern end of your range. Uh, another little aside is that I also study the effects of urbanization on behavior. So I've studied urban populations right on my campus at Western Carolina University. 
and rural populations only, you know, 20 miles away near uh, at a place called Katua Mound near Bryson City. And those rural populations seem to be more migratory than the urban ones. So now back to your question. <laughs> On campus, what you'll find is that if you've caught and banded the, the birds, if you've marked them, that they spend pretty much all year on their territory, even if they're not defending it during gotcha. most of the year. So there's a couple of month stretch from, you know, October through January, where they're very, very rarely singing. Uh, if you try to play a back experiment, you wouldn't get a whole lot of response from them. Um, you may have discussed this other times as well, but you know the uh, the testes of most songbirds are very seasonal, and they regress yes. during the winter season. And the parts of the brain associated with uh, producing song regress. Mm -hmm. So during the non-breeding season, even if they're present on their territory, they're just not physiologically ready uh, for that level of aggression. Now the birds in the in the Western U.S., a lot of those populations that are also non-migratory, do show something a lot more like true year-round territorial behavior. Some amount of song year-round, some amount of territorial aggression year-round. Um, but it's still going to really crescendo during the breeding season. Right. Um, and I, I even saw some accounts, too, that even uh, the migratory ones in their winter flocks will kind of have these dominance hierarchies and... Um, uh, some correlations with uh, the more dominant ones in the winter flocks will then return to their breeding territory mm. and kind of hold uh, hold better territory or have larger clutch sizes. I'm not sure exactly how they measured that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, there's still, even though, yeah, maybe the testes have shrunk during the winter <laughs> and stuff, they're, they're still kind of in the back of their mind thinking, you know, towards, uh, towards defending and fighting um, and everything like that. If they have to, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You mentioned, you know, your research with urban versus rural. Um, what have you found with kind of what the urban song sparrows are like versus what the rural song sparrows are like as far as aggression and personality and that kind of stuff? Well, so I'll give you a little background there as well. But, um, you know, there's this phenomenon known as behavioral syndromes, which is the recognition that sometimes variation in one behavior correlates with variation in another behavior. So we've described that birds can be really aggressive or really non-aggressive. I mentioned earlier that some birds can be really bold, which means that they're not scared of predators or other disturbances, and some birds are really shy. And those things tend to go together. So the more aggressive you are in fighting with members of your own species, the more, uh, the more bold you might be when a predator is around and vice versa. So there was a lot of work happening on behavioral syndromes, also sometimes known as personalities in animals. And when I started working at Western Carolina University, uh, you know, there are song sparrows all over campus. And it was immediately obvious to me that these birds were way bolder than the ones that I was used to working with at rural game lands in western Pennsylvania because they're just not scared of people. You can walk yeah. right up to them. And I thought, 
you know, if, if this follows a behavioral syndromes pattern, then these urban song sparrows would also be way more territorial aggressive than rural song sparrows because those two traits are correlated. But to be perfectly honest, I thought that was sort of a straw man that I was setting up because I didn't think yeah. any reason why urban song sparrows would be more aggressive than rural ones. And then I had a couple of undergrads that I was working with started doing song playback experiments with our urban song sparrows. And it immediately became clear to me that in fact, they were way more aggressive on average <laughs> than the rural sparrows that I was used to. I mean, they'll come right up to the speaker. They would sit on top of the speaker, sing and sing and sing and shake with rage and sing all their soft song and stuff like that. I mean, people are like that too. Like, I suppose you go so. from, yeah, you go from rural area and then you drive into New York City and people are yelling out their car window at you and stuff. Well, you see, my uh, my grandparents and my parents grew up in New York City, so whenever I tell them the story about urban things being more aggressive, uh, they very aggressively say, "No, that's not the case. <laughs> urban people are not more aggressive." But anyway. Uh, We'll see if my mom listens to this. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss, I miss. Uh, that's that's so cool though. Um and I, I love just picturing you walking around uh campus and, and just seeing, you know, them being like, oh, they're they're getting closer to me, and then all of a sudden an experiment pops in your mind. That's such a cool way to think. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and that's that experiment has turned out to be, you know, what I've been following up on for the the last 10, 15 years or so. I mean, that, I think that's quite often the way it works. Like, uh, you know, you're always being inspired by work that other people have done. And then you have this tiny, tiny little moment of inspiration or insight where you say, ah, here's my next experiment. And if something cool happens or something unexpected happens in that next experiment, then that can be the inspiration for, uh, for your work and for other people's work for some time to come. Yep. Um, well, that's awesome. Uh, is there anything else that I didn't ask about or uh, and about song sparrow behavior, aggression, personality, anything else that I don't know, you really love about these words or we didn't touch on? Oh, I don't know. I think we've talked about quite a bit that I actually <laughs> do <laughs> like about these birds. Uh, you know, there's so many things about them that I don't study. Um, but there's been so much work on, on the singing behavior of males. Uh, I think you mentioned this earlier that, you know, the way that they learn their songs, the way they produce their songs, mm -hmm. uh, the way that songs change over time. Because of the fact that they're learned, you get geographic variation in song, just the way that you do get geographic variation in, um, in human accents, even if they're speaking the same language. Right. Uh, so I love the fact that you can listen to song sparrows from different places and they sound different and weird to you because they're they have a different accent than your local song sparrows. Yeah, it's so awesome. And yep, I'm going to do my best to uh, describe the vocalizations uh, in the rest of this episode um, using uh, other people's research. But uh, yeah, I've, you, you really helped me talk about their um you know, their behavior. I love the taxidermy attacks. Taxidermy. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me. Sure. My pleasure.
And I just want to mention that um, you uh, have a couple books, um, one out and one in the works right now. Um, uh, you have your uh, children's book, um, Bird Brains, The Wild and Wacky World of Birds. Mm -hmm. um, and then also you have an upcoming book, um, Bird Talk. Um, and uh, I couldn't help when I was reading the, uh, you know, description of this uh, book, Bird Talk. Um, is the song sparrow going to feature in it? There's a few song sparrow stories in there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of a funny thing when you're you're writing a book that where you're trying to describe behavior and of you know the birds of the world, and so you want to make sure to cover birds from all sorts of different places and uh, cover research done by lots of different people and not just talk about your own research. That's that's a little lame to talk about <laughs> your own research. But yeah, there were, there were many times writing that book where, uh, you know, Barbara Ballantyne and I probably just could have talked about the birds that we knew best. Uh, <laughs> it could have been, you know, all about song sparrows, but it's good to, to bring in other things. Song sparrows are not the most colorful birds in the world. So if you want to talk about plumage, you might choose something else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Pleasure talking to you too. That was great. Thanks so much to Professor Jeremy Hyman for being on the show. Check out the cover art for this episode and our social media post to see a picture of Jeremy holding a turtle. Also, be sure to check out the following episode, um, part two on Song Sparrows, where I discuss all the other interesting facts that uh, Jeremy and I didn't cover. And there is a lot. Um, how they learn their songs, their many unique subspecies, their evolutionary history, how they raise their young, among so many other facts. Um, I originally thought that this bird was going to be like easy because it's like a common bird, you know, it's all over the U.S., but it turned out because it's so widespread, there's tons of research on it. So I had to sift through so many articles, but um, I think I brought you guys uh, some of the best facts. So let me know what you think. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, and our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks, everyone, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Our logo is made by TJ Ranoski, with inspiration from my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Love you, babe, even though you don't listen to the show. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, and our outro is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Find them wherever you get your music. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, you name it, Dirty Bird's been there. Jungle. I might get into a little wrong.